Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3, I've titled it, It's the Servant of the Mystery, if you will, part 2, and it's bound up there, and we're going to finish the mystery of the gospel being revealed in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Let me read you our text this morning. It's found in verse 9 all the way down through verse 13. In fact, let me back up one to 8. You follow with me in your Bible, uh, 3, 8 down through 13. To me, and it wasn't like to me, like with boldness, but to me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. May God bless the reading of his scripture. I open our time just even this morning by a question Uh, Where is history going? What is the purpose of history? What is history even moving toward? You know, down through the ages, there's been a number of people who have ideas of history. One was by the name of Henry Ford, of course, from the Ford Motor, Motor Company. And on the meaning of history... When in 1919, during a libel suit against the Chicago Tribune, he said this about history. He said, did Ford, history is bunk. That was his comment over 100 years ago. It's bunk. There was another historian by the name of H. Fisher, and he gave his life to the study of history. And at the end of it, He concluded of history, quote, that it had no purpose, end of quote. In other words, there's no end to it. There's no purpose to it. There's no objective to it. Life just keeps repeating itself in an endless cycle. And of course, that's the pessimism I'm sure that is in our own day. But then, of course, if you're not a pessimist, You could be an optimist, and we can call the optimist humanist, and they claim, and you've seen it just here before our eyes, that the world is advancing, that the world is developing, that we're advancing in science, we're advancing in culture, education, we're advancing in technology, and maybe just up to a few weeks ago, we were advancing in vaccines, but there's a pause on one of those. I mean, a Christian just sees right through the superficial thinking, and I'm being brief here, of two world wars, Vietnam, the Korean War, the Gulf War, 9-11, a global pandemic, it has all but pulled out the rug from under us. And far from this being a time of enlightenment, 
Man is actually in the dark. He's in the dark, the Bible says, without God, without hope, drowning in a cesspool of sin. And this, beloved, is precisely where the gospel comes in. Amen? It brings hope, the only hope. And it brings peace. And of course, that hope and that peace are found in the gospel and found specifically in the person of Jesus Christ. So as you're holding your Bible open there to Ephesians chapter 3, we're looking at what I subtitle can call it the master plan for the ages. And here, beloved, as you're going to see and as we've already studied, the focal point of all history is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And just this morning... As your Bible is open and as you're here present, okay, we come really to some of the most glorious truths in all of Scripture. We come really to a fitting climax of this mystery being revealed. Now, some are asking as we walk into this, what is Paul doing in prison? I mean, if this gospel is so glorious, how come he's in prison? And we've mentioned a few times, probably for about five years, he was there for at least two years in Caesarea, then he had some court stuff that he had to do, then he had to get a boat to go to Rome, and then he's probably been in Rome for two more years, so we think this is probably around the fifth year of his imprisonment. And so what he does, look at 3.1, he begins to extrapolate, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner for Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles... And then literally, the language just kind of falls off from the sentence there. And he was going to go on at that point in 3.1 and get to this reason. Look down at verse 14. He has to repeat it again. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And then he picks up his prayer in verses 15 through 21. So what is he doing as he's, as he's worshiping, as he's... Praying as he's receiving, if you will, revelation from God, he stops right there and he goes into what we call the parentheses in his life from verses 2 through 13 here. And at the core of this parentheses, again, is the mystery of Jesus Christ. What is the mystery? He created one new people by bringing, if you will, Jew and Gentile together into one body with both having direct and equal access to the Father. So he's unlocking this mystery in 13, 1 through 3. And he unlocks it through three keys. And we don't need to review that. But we've looked at the prisoner and the steward of the mystery. That was in 3, 1 and 2. Then we looked at the last weeks together at the revelation of the mystery of what that mystery namely is. In fact, let me just, for the sake of clarity, what's the mystery? Look in verse 5 of chapter 3, that was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, and as, as it has now been revealed to the Holy Spirit, or excuse me, the holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, well, what's the mystery? Here it is, 3.6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, and here in the language, fellow members of the same body, and even fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So therein lies the mystery. 
that the gospel wasn't just for the Jew, to the Jew first, but then it went to the Greek. It's for the whole world. And now you're sitting this morning as part of that history. If you're Jewish, he redeemed you. If you're not Jewish, then you're part of the mystery. And you're not just an appendix to the plan and heart of God. No, it says there in 3, 6, your fellow heirs, fellow members, and fellow partakers of the promise. And so here he talks about himself as the prisoner, steward of the mystery, and then the revelation of the mystery. And I bring you in now to this third and final key, the servant of the mystery. The servant. In other words, Paul just begins to explain himself. How did he get here in this part of church history? How do you find yourself in it today? And he begins to look at his ministry and I said a couple weeks ago, it was marked by four compelling components. Number one, he was called by God. Verse seven, he was made a minister. Uh, it says there, I love that phrase of this gospel, God made me a minister. So he said, I may be in jail, but I'm not in jail on my own. I have been called by God. This calling is not mine. This calling is not something I did. It is not a result of my education. It is not a result of my intellect. It is not a result of my background. Far from it. He said of this gospel, he said, I was made a minister. And that is a compelling element of this servant. Secondly, he said he was gifted with grace and power. You remember that. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. In other words, that's not the grace that saved him. That's Acts 9. This is a grace gifting that God not only called him, but he graced him, if you will, with grace and with power, if you will. And again, it's not his doing. It's not his calling. It's not his choice. He's not here on his own. He is here by a heavenly call. Acts chapter 9, when he was on the road to Damascus, he's setting the table. He's saying, yes, I am the servant of the mystery, but here's how I got into it. And remember when he says there, uh, and it's kind of a funny thing. I didn't make a big deal out of it. He says to, in verse 8 to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. And you can't really even speak what he said. He made a word up in Greek that we can't find it anywhere else. He said, I'm just not the least. I'm the leaster, is what he said. I'm the leaster. You know, I'm not just the lowest. I'm the leaster of all the saints. And so it was all God's grace. And does not God have a sense of humor to take one who was an accomplice to murder and then by his wonderful grace empower him to preach the glorious gospel. You say, what did he preach? Well, it says there in verse 8, he preached to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. In other words, he had the wonderful privilege to not preach himself, not talk about himself. The content of it was the unsearchable riches of Christ. What, what do you mean unsearchable? Well, that's where we left off is we said it's unable to be tracked out is the thought. The person of Christ is so glorious, so majestic, so holy that he's unsearchable, that he's unfathomable, if you will, that he's unexplorable, that he's incalculable. The riches here that Paul's talking about that he got to preach, you can see, it's not about material gain. 
He's not about politics. He's not about current events. He's about Jesus Christ in whom, Paul said in Colossians 2, 3, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So here he is, called by God, gifted with grace and power, and set apart to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ. But he also had that fourth and final component, which is breathtaking. I think I just call it the revealer to the church. I don't know how to call it. what to call it, revealer of the mysteries, fair, but he's the revealer to the church. Now, if you're studying the scripture, and I don't mean to be tedious here, look at verse 9. He says, and, just stop there for a second. He's preaching the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ, but that's not all. There's one more compelling element He's a revealer of something. And look at it in verse 9. And, in addition to that, to bring to light for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden in the ages, hidden for ages in God who created all things? He's a revealer. Now, the word there, to bring to light, you would get that. It is the Greek word photizo, which obviously we get photograph from a photograph is going to bring to light something that was caught in history, if you will. But here's his role, is he is bringing to light something. He is revealing something. Like, like I just want to say this morning, what a joy to stand here to hear. We could read this on our own, but he's bringing something. He's revealing something. He's illuminating something. He is putting the the floodlights on. As I look up, I see the lights on my face. This thing, this truth is far greater than a physical light. He's revealing a truth here. And this truth, again, look at verse 9, is for everyone. And I just take that to be and include, obviously, the Gentiles. Okay? So, beloved, listen. Uh, we're, we're holding it in our book, or your Bible is turned on. This is God's word. This is something that he told Paul. This is something that was revealed to him, to the apostles by the, and the prophets, by the Holy Spirit. Now, you'll note here what is, he is being revealed. Look at verse 9. What is the plan... He uses that same word in 3.2 regarding stewardship. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? In other words, for ages it had been hidden. And I want you to know it was hidden in God. It was not hidden by man. It was not kept secret by man. It was hidden in God, and God chose to reveal what was hidden to Paul. Now, you'll note that it's linked there with something. Look at verse 9. It says there, the plan of the mystery hidden, which we've talked about, for ages in God who created all things. In fact, in one translation, it says in verse 9, who created the world, if you will. In other words, what Paul is saying here is the same one, beloved, who spoke the world into existence is the same one who revealed the mystery of Jesus Christ to Paul 
and then to us, and you're holding it in your hand. You might say, well then, for what purpose was this mystery brought to fotizo or light? Thanks for asking. Look at the next verse in verse 10. Here it's why, here's why. So that, we call that a purpose clause, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, this mystery coming through the church, expressing the wisdom of God, might be made known to, it says there, I think that, that's the ESV, to the rulers and authorities. Now, who are the rulers and authorities? Okay, and then I'll put the dots back together. There are some writers who think that the rulers and authorities are the ones who were the rulers and authorities in Paul's day who was given oversight. So in our own day, I suppose that would be uh, Gavin Newsom, <laughs> okay? But that's not what this verse means. And it's not what it even means in the scripture. The rulers and the authorities, and I'll show you this, are who? They're the angels. You say, why do you think it's the angels? Well, look at the text again. Put your eyes back there. It might be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the, what? The heavenly places. In other words, he's not only preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ, but verse 10, it's through the church that the manifest wisdom of God is being made known, let me put it this way, to the angels. Say, so how so? Well, let me just first show you the argument. Look back, maybe it's there on the same page. Chapter 1 in verse 21, where he's talking about the, the glory of Christ. And he says, speaking of Christ... Speaking, verse 20, of being raised from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places in verse 20. And now in 21, he is, speaking of Christ, far above, here it is, all rule and authority. He's above all power, if you will, and dominion. He's above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In other words, he's not just above human relationships and leadership he's above all rule all authority those rules that authority in the heavenly places okay and you might say well what kind of angels are they are they holy are they unholy and my answer is I don't know but all I know is that He's bringing to light through the church the manifold wisdom of God to the angelic host. You say, well, why don't you know? Well, look at chapter 2 in Ephesians. Remember this? In 2.2, which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Of course, that's Satan. So when you get to the heavenly places, they could be holy angels. It could just be the unholy world of the demonic realm. Of course, you might not have to turn there, but you can if you want. Look back and look over to Ephesians 6.12. You could probably quote it with me. For our struggle, or we do not wrestle, 6.12, against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the what? The authorities. In other words, you're not just fighting 
flesh and blood. You're wrestling. You know, these are, you're, you got an enemy here and he's called the devil. And it's not just the devil who's the prince of the power of the air. You and I are wrestling not just against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities. So which one is it, holy or unholy? I don't know. He doesn't specify. But the ministry, listen, the mystery is declared to all men. This is radical. But it's displayed to angels. I preach, Paul said, the unsearchable riches of Christ, yes, to all men. But this mystery is displayed to the angels. And if you're just asking me, and maybe you'd have some input, most likely it's holy angels in the New Testament. Angels are always taking a special interest and even learning. That might be a little bit of a surprise to you. Learning as they see this mystery unfold. What do you mean learning? Well, they're not omniscient. Nowhere in the scripture is a holy angel or a fallen angel omniscient like the character of the triune God. But beloved, although you cannot see the angels, they see us and are, I wrote this in my notes, are fascinated to watch the body of Christ at work. In fact, look at the next scripture. This is the one that I'm pinning to. It's 1 Peter. Bring that up. It was revealed to them, who's that? Well, context, the apostles and the prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you. What does that mean, Scott? They're writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, not serving themselves, you know, 500, 700, 1,500 years ago. They were not serving themselves. They're not writing about aspects of the life of Christ that they that were realized, but you, and the things that have now been, the mystery, the gospel, the scripture, announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, and here's the last phrase, things unto which angels long to what? Look, say, put the dots together. He not only preached the unsearchable riches of Christ to Jew as well as Gentile, but he was revealing, bringing to light through the church the wisdom of God, as it says here, and revealing them to the rulers and authorities. The angels are looking in. They're longing, if you will, to look. In fact, do you remember scriptures like this? I think it comes up. You don't have to turn, your, turn there. I tell you that there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who what? Repents. They're rejoicing in heaven when people come to Christ. I just went to an unbelievable testimony for a man at Teen Challenge on Monday who in the midst of a COVID year, I'm good friends, have actually known his brother for 30 years and uh, his brother got in the wrong way on alcohol and drugs and he was able to get into Teen Challenge God used the power of the word to, to redeem him. He, he, in fact, he was so excited about the Lord. He almost, he, he couldn't quite explain what happened to his life. 30 years on alcohol and drugs. And if you were to be there, if you were to watch this, 
If you were to see the joy on his face, he was so happy because in the last few months he's been redeemed. And I'm telling you, there's angels in heaven over one sinner who repents. They're watching in. They're looking in. Listen, in 1 Timothy 5.21, it says that when you discipline an elder, Paul says, I charge you to do this. He says, before the elect or the chosen angels. In other words, this mystery was revealed, not just to you preach, but it's being revealed as the gospel goes out to the church, to the rulers and the authorities. The angels saw the power of God in creation. They saw the wrath of God at Mount Sinai. They saw the love of God at Calvary. But now they're watching the manifold wisdom of God being revealed in the church. So what does that mean there? Look again at 3.10. Let me come back to it. When it speaks of the wisdom of God, it's just the ordering of divine history. The history, the plan for the ages that God has revealed. Is there an end to it? Oh, yeah. Look back at chapter 1. Sure, there's an end. It says there, um, uh, it's actually in verse 10, as a plan, there's our word, for the fullness of time, what is that? To unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's where it's all going. It's all moving towards the apex of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in the wisdom of God regarding divine history, in the wisdom of God calling and saving you before the foundation of the world, and in the wisdom of God saving you in chapter 2, where it says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. That's all the wisdom of God. But he doesn't just call it the wisdom of God. Look again in 3.10. In the ESV, it's called the manifold wisdom of God. It's what we call a hapax. You don't have to know this. Legomena. And it just means it's the only place in the New Testament that it's used is what that means. But we've seen that word once before, manifold. It's used in the Old Testament in what we call, not the Hebrew, but the Septuagint. And it's the same word, and you can finish the sentence, for Joseph's coat of what? Many colors. In other words, Paul is saying that God's wisdom on this mystery is like, in my words, a, a kaleidoscope that reveals the brilliant, the dazzling pattern of variated colors and shapes of the formation of the Jew and Gentile being one body in the life of the church. Let me just say, understatement, no power, no person, no power could have ever seen that God would unfold this plan. It was hidden, not by man, not under a rock somewhere. It was hidden for the ages by God. It is now, though, revealed, and we can only stand back at mar and marvel at its intricate design. That not only is it to be preached to all, but it's made known, revealed, if you will, to the rulers and authorities. You know, just a word on TMS, the Master's Seminary. We, we have it here, okay? And the Master's Seminary is preparing 
pastors, thank you for your investment in that. Thank you for allowing some of our men to be on scholarship. It's a real privilege. And so we're training pastors to be churchmen. But beloved, I want you to know, I'm making a contrast, that the church is the graduate school for angels. It is the schoolhouse for the manifold wisdom of God to be known to rulers and authorities, the angels. McKay, a Scottish commentator, said the unfolding of the wisdom of God as seen in the church becomes the graduate school for angels. Listen, angels are the assembled witnesses before whom God reveals the manifold wisdom of God. That's what the text says. Listen, don't be anywhere else today. I mean, I'm just standing here. I just feel privileged. Be in the house of God. Be worshiping with us. Be present when we're present because God in his sovereignty not only wants you to have the mystery revealed, but he's revealing truth to the rulers and the authorities. And he does it. This is going to be a stretch for some of you. And I don't, I don't, I don't mean that mean. He does that, look at 310. Through the what? Through the church. He does this through a church which brings his wisdom to experience, okay, or expression. I like how Stott said this. I think it's on the screen. It is through the old creation, the universe, that God reveals his glory to humans. But it is through the new creation, the church, that it reveals his wisdom to angels. You say, well, Scott, uh, how does that practically work? Well, I sent a text to somebody who hasn't been here in 14 months last week. And I said, hey, there might be various reasons, I understand. We miss you. We love you. I said, but don't miss the miracle service on Sunday. The miracle service is not any one of our leaders performing miracles It's the miracle of a baptismal service. Here's what I heard that I jotted down. An adopted girl was baptized. Born into another family, born into another state, adopted into a precious family, giving testimony of what God has done in her life. Another young man testified of a seed being planted at the death of his brother. Such a hard trial. His brother had passed into glory by way of just human accident. And God used that to help this young man understand, hey, maybe I'm not as secure as I think he is. Another young man that got in the waters last week was greatly impacted by the death of a man in our community because when that man went to glory, he recognized he wasn't sure of his own and God planted seeds in both of those young men's heart respectively and they both trusted Christ. Another young man, you say, why are you saying this? I think the angels are 
watching it all. Watching God put people in this body. Watching God use you to share the message to save others. Then another man got in the waters and he spoke about his love for the three G's that we call them. His love for greed. His love for girls. His love for gold. And he was cut to the quick in the recent year and he came to Christ. I think, beloved, the angels are looking down on this church or any church that gives expression to this at the manifold wisdom of God that is being revealed. This is what the text says to the rulers and to the authorities. And there were many others according to the intricacy of God's marvelous design to save people from so many backgrounds. Listen, maybe just a word to you. I think all he's trying to do is get us ready for chapters 4 through 6. I came up to Derek and Tana at one of the songs uh, because they were saved by God's grace as each of us were. But they were saved on a high school campus through a ministry on that high, high school campus when both sets of their parents, at least at that time, didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't, it's amazing. You say, well, what's he doing? He's putting the variegated manifold wisdom for us to be together as a body. And he puts people together in his providence and he places you into the plan of the ages and, and it's amazing what he's doing. And so, you know, this, this and where does this happen? <laughs> well, I, let me just say, it happens in the sphere of the local church. And some of you might be saying, oh, Scott, that's a little strong. I mean, I kind of like the church, but really? Well, look at verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Does he use other people? Does he use nonprofits? Yes. But he's revealing his wisdom through the church, through the body of Christ, through Jew and Gentile and backgrounds and different adoptions and different experiences. You know, I don't know where my story gets in there, but I told you I grew up in a completely unsaved home. And somebody in Canoga Park began to witness to my mom and dad. I'd never heard the gospel in all of my life until I was eight years old at a vacation Bible school. But somehow... In the mystery and the plan of God, he had my name written in the book of life before I was born. In fact, not only did he have my name or your name written in the book of life before you came to Christ, he had it written in the book of life before the foundation, what? Of the world. You say the church, yeah. But when many think of the church, some, some, I, you know, I don't know, some see its deficiencies. Some criticize its divisions. Some see, and maybe some of you have come out of a church where it was just petty, if you will, or pettiness took place. And consequently, some can set the church aside. One guy said, to dwell with the saints above, that will be glory. But to dwell with the saints below, that's another story, you know? You heard that? 
And, and sometimes we have to put up with each other's foibles and weaknesses. But the angels are watching. The rulers and authorities are observing. They're watching the mystery unfold. And let me just say to my own heart and to you, there's a far bigger audience than you present. It's a far bigger audience than live stream. It's a far bigger audience than YouTube. God is revealing his plan through the witness of the church. Now, obviously, we have the universal church. We have the local church, but it's coming through the church. And I'm just going to say it. Maybe you've heard me say it again. Um, Spurgeon used to say, if you cut me, I'm going to bleed Bibline, the Bible's going to come after me, out me. I like to say, if you cut me, I'm going to bleed local church. I just want you to know I love the local church. And that's not a big deal because Christ loved the church so much that he shed his own blood for it. And you're here and I'm preaching to the choir. I want you to love this place. And when I say it, I'm not talking about brick and mortar. I'm talking about the interaction with one another and the one another's that go into place. And when we worship, we, we weep and we cry and we come alongside people. We love people because why? He put us in it and you're here. 32 people became members last Sunday. You say, well, but pastor, when did he do all of this? I mean, I, I think I've said this to you before. Did he just pull an Indiana Jones in the Garden of Eden? Remember when Indy was on that hill and everything was blowing up down below? And the guy looked over to Indy and he said, Indy, what are you going to do? There's explosions going off. These, these are old movies. There's gas that's coming out. There's fires that are starting. And Indy looked at him and he said, I don't know. I'm going to make it up as we go. Do you think God just made this up? Do you think he just pulled an Indiana Jones? Oh, no, not at all. You say, why? Look at the scripture. In 311, this was, this whole ideal of being revealed, according to the eternal purpose that has been realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. God's eternal plan, listen, what we're talking about, the mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory, Jew and Gentile together is not an emergency measure when Adam sinned. Oh no, God didn't say. Oops. What am I going to do now? No, listen. God's never been not in control. Amen. He's the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, the first, and the last. He's immutable. He's omniscient. He knows everything there is to know. God has always been in control. And his eternal purposes, verse 11, will always be accomplished. But if I could put it together then, the church has always been his eternal purpose. <laughs> You're sitting in something, I, we're a local expression of that. But it always has been his plan. And listen, can I just say to you... Um, I've got to watch my heart here at this because you're here. Don't float. And if you're not going to come here, go somewhere. Because all I know, this is God's plan, right? 
And that local church needs you as an expression to reveal the body of Christ. But the church has eternal roots. So what does that mean? Okay, it's before Adam and Eve were born, before he actually created the world, before he spoke the world into existence, God planned the church in his eternal purpose to bring Jew and Gentile together through the work of Jesus Christ. In fact, let me pivot here. Look at verse 11 at the end, because this is really what it's all about. That he realized, in Christ Jesus our Lord... And you know we've been talking about this union with Christ, our position in Christ. We were chosen in Christ, 1-5, in 1-4, in and then in 1-5, we were predestined through Christ. In Him, 1-11, we have an eternal inheritance. We've been made alive, raised up with Him in chapter 2 in the heavenly places. Paul said it this way in 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ. I think that scripture is going to come up. Before the ages begin, 2 Timothy 1.9. He called you according to his eternal purpose, but it's all coming to us in Christ. God's eternal purpose, beloved, is the church, a reconciled people in Jesus Christ, hidden for the ages, but now revealed to us through Paul. And Christ is the center of it all. In fact, look what he says there in 12. He said, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Uh, Watch this. You say, what does that mean? If you're part of the glory of the church, you have a relationship with God the Father who redeemed you, God the Son who died for you, God the Holy Spirit who sealed you, and you no longer have to be fearful. You no longer have to be afraid. You could come into the throne room of God, put them together with boldness. I think they're to be seen together with access, with confidence. You come in boldness, freedom of speech to say anything, You have an openness of speech where you can just come into the presence of God. You have a boldness to come. I'm sure he's going to be speaking of this in the next section on prayer, meaning that you could come to God in an absence of fear. Whereas before, if you don't know Christ, like me as a teenager, I was real fearful of God. Not anymore. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die in my place. And because of that, because of our union with Christ, because we're one with Christ... We now have boldness. And then he mentions access. And he says with confidence in the old days, the only way that you could get access, it was a word used in oriental courts when a person would be brought into the presence of a king. In other words, you need to gain admission into his presence or you need to be introduced into his presence. And here, there's an introduction into the presence of a king. You remember even in the Old Testament when Queen Esther was afraid of the king, and the king was her, what? Husband. But now with God, beloved, through Christ, we have an entrance into the presence of not just an earthly king, but you have an entrance into the heavenly king, God the Father, through the work of Jesus Christ. Of course, we don't get that on our own access, do we? 
on our own merit, on our own deeds. We get that access because everything Jesus Christ has done for you. You say, what do you mean? Well, he kept the law. He lived a sinless life, excuse me. He died a death you deserved. He shed his blood for you and granted you the forgiveness of your sins. So it is in Jesus Christ, beloved, in whom you now have boldness and whom you now have access with confidence. How is that even possible? It's only possible through Christ. So in just a moment, we're going to take the elements. It's only possible through his life. Just go back for a minute. Remember when the, there was only one guy who could go into the Holy of Holies? One guy, once a year, and he went behind the veil into the Holy of Holies, and he took with him blood to sprinkle, if you will, on the altar the sins of the whole nation. It wasn't just that a high priest could go there or just a priest. You had to actually be the high priest. And they put all this stuff on him because he was going to go into the Holy of Holies once a year. So he, he put this uh, robe on. And, and you probably know this. And on the robe, at the end of it, were uh, uh, bells. And then they also not only put the robe on him and all the vesture that he had, and then they they put on him a rope and they tied the rope around the waist because it's this high priest, only one guy, one time, once a year to offer the blood for the whole sins of the people. And they let him go in there with this robe on. And the answer is, you ask, why did they do that? Because listen, the high priest could only atone for their sins, Leviticus 17, once a year. And some people, when they got into the presence of God, would be toast, they would die. So if they stopped hearing the bells, I don't know how you make bells. Uh, if they stopped hearing the bells, the guy could have been consumed by the presence of God. And if they didn't hear the bells behind the veil into the Holy of Holies, they then got the rope. They had to pull the guy out and send the next high priest in because they wanted to make sure that their sins were atoned for. But I just want you to know the Lord Jesus Christ has died in your place. We no longer need a high priest. That sacrifice was made once and for all, for all time. And no longer do you have to be fearful in your prayer or fearful in your life. Here you can now come with boldness, freedom of speech. You can come with confidence. We already sang that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And it's all because of what he did for us. We have a great God, don't we? We could, it says, let us with, it says, let us, and I'm in Hebrews 4, you can look at it. I don't know if this comes up on the screen. Go to the next one. We do not have a high priest. See, he was a high priest. Prophet, priest, and king. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet he's without sin. Let us then, here's, with confidence. You don't have to be fearful anymore. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may find may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so we have a wonderful, merciful Savior. But the last thing, just our time is up. It'd be incomplete if I didn't say one more thing. You say, well, how do you get this? I mean, I could tell you exactly how you get this. Not because I'm smart. Um, you say, I want this. I don't know God like that. How can I know God like my friend Danny Wilde on Friday? 
I mean, how, how does anybody get into the presence of God? You say, well, Scott, it's through faith and it's, it's in Christ and it's through the person of Christ and you're right, but there's an access channel here that's found in all of the Word of God. And I leave you with this. Look at 3.12. In Him, we have boldness and access with confidence. Here's the instrument, the means. Through what? Our faith. But it doesn't just say our faith. It says our faith in what? Him. Have you placed your faith in Christ? You say, Scott, why is it? Faith in Him. Real easy. You don't get the glory. It's not your good works. It's not your good deeds. You've got to get to the place where you're bowing on your knee, if you will, beating your breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. A what? A sinner. The access, the channel, the instrument is always faith, but faith always has a direct object. And it's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, there's a massive group in here. I'm not talking to the group. I'm talking to you individually. I don't care if you have parents that are saved, you have grandparents that are saved. I just want to ask you, have you closed with Christ? Have you actually got to the point where you confessed with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe that God raised him on the dead, you shall be saved. Have you confessed that? Have you, just individually, and I'm just trying to be kind here, a shepherd to you, have you placed your faith in the person of Jesus Christ? The only way that you can get in Christ is to trust him through the agency of faith. But, and, and I always want to be clear there, it's not your faith. The Bible never talks about that. Oh, yeah, he talks about faith, but my point is faith always has a direct object, and the direct object is not you. The direct object is not your choice. I have faith, as though you could glory in your faith. Your faith is always bound up in a person. Amen?